God is good. God is with us this morning. Uh, and put, let's put our seatbelts on. We're in the book of Daniel this morning, and we are in chapter 7. And it's really a great privilege for us to study uh, this book. It's the most amazing prophetic book written 600 BC, and it sweeps across time. It predicts world empires, and it takes us all the way to the end, to the final return and coming of Jesus Christ. The book of Daniel will be divided into two halves. The first six chapters are mainly history with Daniel in Babylon, with some prophecy particular, uh, particularly found in chapter 2. The second half, 7 to 12, is mainly prophecy. Sadly, that is the neglected part of the book. I'm sure there are many here who have not uh, had teaching that has led you through the prophetical chapters of Daniel. Sadly, because it's neglected, because it takes some work to wade through it. But the reward is great. So it deserves our attention this morning. And I would encourage you to purpose to tune your heart in and be focused. And God will have something special for us as we study his word. Prophecy is one of those incredible things that gives us great, um, great depth and, and stability in our faith. For we have to come to the conclusion that God wrote this book and also that God is in control. So it's encouraging in the deepest sense when we study his word like this, because we come to the conclusion that God knows what he's doing, that the sovereign God understands that history is taking us somewhere, and he also sees the sparrow, and he also sees you and knows all things. But of course, much of it involves symbolism, which is why people sometimes struggle when they think about prophecy, because it involves beasts and horns and toes and wings and heads. Um, And it can be a little bit uh, intimidating for some. But God tells us in Hosea 12.10, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. So God tells us, he uses symbolism and it has a purpose and the Bible explains itself. When symbolism is used, it's not left to our imagination. The Bible interprets the symbolism for us. We remember back at the beginning of Daniel in chapter 2, and this is an important backdrop for us as we think about chapter 7, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And it was only Daniel, through God, who was able to interpret the dream. The wise men of the kingdom were not able to do that. So in Daniel 2.32, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, the dream that you had was that the image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly iron and partly clay. And you watched while a stone was cut out with hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And then Daniel interprets the dream. And he takes the image and he he interprets it as a timeline. And if you could take the image and put it on its side you would see that it's a timeline that leads us through the world empires on the earth. 
starting with Nebuchadnezzar's time, Babylon, then going to the Medes and Persians who succeeded them, and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And he leads us all the way to the stone that would come, which is the second coming, and the mountain that would rise up, speaking of Christ's literal, physical, future kingdom on the earth. So it's remarkable to think that these prophecies have such purpose and accuracy. This timeline is known eschatologically or theologically. It's known as the times of the Gentiles. That's what Jesus called it in Luke 21, 24, when he said Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this refers to Gentile supremacy or dominance in, in, in the world, and particularly over Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you'll see in the Muslim quarter, the Dome of the Rock sits right over the temple site. There's a certain irony there. So as Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he says in 2.38, you are the head of gold. He clearly tells Nebuchadnezzar, the head in the symbolism refers to you, Nebuchadnezzar, and your great powerful kingdom of Babylon. But then he says, but after you, shall be another kingdom inferior to yours. And this speaks of the Medo-Persian Empire with Cyrus from 539 for about 200 years. And then another kingdom typified by the bronze shall rule over the earth. And this represents the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great in 331 BC and on. You may say, well, well, we know that it's Babylon because he says it's you, Nebuchadnezzar, but how do we know the next sections refer to the Medo-Persian and the Greeks? Good question. We know because of Daniel in other prophecies. In Daniel chapter 8, he uses different symbolism, but he's again looking at the same timeline. He uses the symbolism of a ram and a goat with a central horn. And he says in 820... The ram that you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. So it's not left to our guesswork or speculation. He tells us. And what's more incredible about that, because it's 300 years before Greece as an empire, he says, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. This is why critics of the Bible particularly hate the book of Daniel, because its prophecies are so profound and so precise, hundreds of years before the time. Back to chapter 2, he then speaks about the fourth kingdom. It shall be as strong as iron, insomuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And of course, iron here characterizing the Roman Empire from 168 BC, the two legs typifying the western and the eastern aspects of that empire. But as time continues, you see a mingling of iron with clay in verse 41 partly of potter's clay and iron, which of course don't merge. It represents a weakness in that kingdom. And as we know from history, the Roman Empire was not conquered. It was not succeeded by another. It really, as it says here, was, will be divided, or the word could be fragmented. It just kind of separated out. In fact, we could say that the Roman Empire is residual today, in what was once the old Roman Empire, including us. Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, Hungary, Croatia, and on. We could say these are what was the Roman Empire. And in the image, he goes on to speak about the ten toes of the the image. 
And he says that those toes are kings. Again, it's spelled out for us. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the prophecy in Daniel 7, again, different symbolism. He speaks of not ten toes, but ten horns. But he clearly says, and the ten horns are ten kings. So people stumble over this and they say, oh, horns and toes, what does it mean? The Bible says the ten horns are ten kings. And it looks to a future revived form of the Roman Empire. It doesn't speak of a fifth kingdom. It speaks of a revived, surfacing future form of the Roman Empire. As you can imagine, this has been a focus of Bible prophecy. Bible scholars are always looking to our present time and waiting for a confederacy of ten kings. When will that happen? You could, you could understand that there have been times in history that have really got the attention of the Christian community. For example, in 1957 when the European Economic Community was created, ironically, under the Treaty of Rome, it got the attention of a lot of Christians. In 1981, when Greece became the 10th member nation of the European Community, again, people were like, this is it. And of course, when other nations were added, they realized perhaps not. In 1993, the EC became part of the EU, which is currently 27 members, not 28. Just throw that out. But we must be careful because we can't be dogmatic with our applications. We don't know what this union will be, when it will be, who it will involve. The EU very possibly may peter out or be disassembled and another union may come. We just know the prophecy looks to a future uh, ten confederation of nations uh, with a future dominance on the earth. And he tells us in 244... And in the days of these kings, there it is, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people like the other kingdoms were succeeded. The final kingdom of Christ will not be succeeded. It shall break in pieces and consume the other kingdoms and it will stand forever. And that will bring an end to the times of the Gentiles. That is the end of that timeline. So we see this same timeline and theme echoed in chapter 7. Again, it's different symbolism, but it's the same timeline. In Daniel chapter 7, it's four creatures or beasts or animals, if you will. The lion represents Babylon, the bear represents Media Persia, the leopard represents Greece, and there's a fourth strangely undefined beast that represents Rome. So as we go to chapter 7, it says, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, by the way, chronologically, this vision is between chapter 4 and 5. The visions of Daniel, if you like, are an appendix at the end of the book, and they slot into the timeline uh, differently. We know that Belshazzar died at the end of chapter 5, so that explains that. This is the first of four of Uh, Daniel's visions from chapter 7 to chapter 12. Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed and he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. So he records the main points and the theme being the coming eternal kingdom of Christ. And Daniel spoke and said, I saw my vision in the night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and the four beasts came up from the sea, each different from one another. 
So as we hit the pause button, we ask the question, well, what is the great sea? What are the winds of heaven? What are the four beasts? And we are told in in verse 17 of this chapter that the four beasts are four kings which arise out of the earth. So the sea represents the earth or humanity, and the beasts represent four kings or four kingdoms. And the stirring up of the winds of heaven refers to God's interaction or work in human affairs. For example, in Daniel 1-2, it says, The Lord gave the king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. In 2.21, it says that God removes kings and sets up kings. In Daniel 4.32, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. This is a running theme through the book of Daniel, that God is overseeing and sovereign over and working in and through even Gentile heathen kings and empires and nations. So then he goes to the beasts. Are you with me? Verse 4, the first one was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Again, this speaks of Babylon. Many of the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, used the lion and the eagle to typify Babylon. Even archaeology has shown areas where a winged lion represents Babylon on their own buildings, etc., and gates. And I watched until its wings were plucked off And it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on its own two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. We remember, we studied chapter 4 of Nebuchadnezzar's own humiliation. Do you remember? When he strutted through the kingdom and said, look what I have done. And then God reduced him. For seven years he was on all fours like an animal. It says that there was hair on his body like like the feathers of an eagle. As is referred to here. And at the end of that time, he stood up again and was given to him the heart of a man. And Nebuchadnezzar says, my understanding returned to me. So we can see in this image also the humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar himself. So this lion with the eagle's wings again is equated with the gold head in Nebuchadnezzar's image of chapter 2. Then next in verse 5. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. Again, the bear is known for its great strength, its fierceness in battle, representing here the Medo-Persian Empire from 539 under King Cyrus. This is the chest of arms. The chest of silver and the arms of silver in Daniel 2 are equated to the bear in here in Daniel 7. The fact that it's raised up on one side typifies the fact that the Persians became the more dominant uh, nation in that alliance with the Medo-Persians. It's interesting that God throws that little detail in. The three ribs most uh, equate that to the three main nations that the Medes and Persians needed to secure uh, as they rose to power, mainly Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. And there's a voice that says, arise and devour much flesh. A voice outside. This is that God is ordaining this, allowing this, instructing this to happen. And this empire would extend way beyond the boundaries of Babylon. We go to the next one in the next verse. And after this I looked, and there was another, 
Like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, a leopard is fast, but if you give it four wings also, uh, that adds to the symbolism. And of course, this speaks of Alexander the Great, who with incredible, unparalleled genius and military expertise was able to conquer the known world in something like 10 years. He came to power when he was about 22, and when he was about 33, he wept on his bed because there was no more lands to conquer. Perhaps he was a spoiled child. We don't know. But in Daniel chapter 5, this is another symbolism of Alexander. There it's pictured as a goat from the west that did not touch the ground. It's interesting also that in this imagery, the the four-headed leopard with the wings, which again equates with the bronze belly of Daniel chapter 2, that it has those four heads. And when... Alexander was asked, who will be your successor, because his sons were murdered, etc. He said, the strong. That's a great way to leave it. I'm, I'm going, I'll leave it to the strong. And of course he had four generals uh, who divided the land. Cassandra, uh, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. We'll study more about them in chapter 8, as the, there's a magnifying glass in chapter 8 on that season. So it's amazing, isn't it, that 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 particular detail of four heads is included in the image of Alexander because he left it to his four generals. And it says dominion was given to it. By who? By God. This was the lesson that God had to teach Nebuchadnezzar. You are in the throne because God has given this to you and God can and may and will and did take it away. Then verse Seven, and after this I saw in the night, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from the other beasts that were before it, and had ten horns. And of course, this is a clear depiction of the Roman Empire, as their crushing legions would trample their way through the known world. And it says that it had ten horns. Now, to the Bible student, that should stand out because we remember the ten toes of Daniel chapter 2. These also speak of these ten kings. A horn, in the ancient thinking, was a symbol of power. If you think of the horn of an animal, it's their point of strength and power and authority. It's used in biblical terminology in the same way. In Daniel 7.24, in this chapter, it says, the ten horns are the ten kings. So, these horns get Daniel's attention. Remember, Daniel's having this vision, and when he sees these ten horns, it's that which gets his attention. It tells us in verse 8, as he considers this strange beast that is not likened to any other known animal, but it is a beast that is described. And the thing that gets his attention is the ten horns. So in verse 8, he asks the question. Verse 8, I was considering the horns. As I was considering the horns, another horn, a little horn, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Another horn. 
Ten horns, we understand, ten kings. But then there's another one. Who is that? And this speaks of a king, a world leader who will come onto the future world stage. He will be the most powerful, charismatic leader. He will almost be a savior in the political sense, that he will have an answer to all of man's problems, perhaps like world peace and global warming and all of these types of things. He's commonly known to us as the Antichrist. He will be a very powerful political figure, and in the beginning it will not be recognized who he is. He will be the last Gentile world ruler, and he will bring an end to the time of the Gentiles, or at least Christ will when he returns And it says he overthrows three of the kings. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and mouth speaking pompous words. That that speaks for itself, doesn't it? The eyes of a man. It means that he has incredible perception. That he he was a great orator. Uh, We think of Hitler, for example, um, and the power and the influence that he had. And we remember what an orator he was. When he spoke, he had an incredible influence and and led other nations to adopt his philosophy, which could never have been predicted that that could ever happen. We now, as Bible students, can't look at this when we think about this last seven years of the Antichrist and say, when it speaks about the persecution of the Jews to come, we can't say, oh, that will never happen. That could never happen. We've seen it happen. And it will happen again, but it will be much worse than the Holocaust was. This is quite a fearful vision, isn't it? Powerful empires, and now we have a little horn or a very powerful, influential king who is speaking great lofty words, a great orator. But look at verse 9. And I watched until the thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days, or the Eternal One, was seated His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. So all we have, the history of men... And where does it end? It ends in the courtroom of God. And the books are opened. Daniel says, I watch because of the sound of the pompous or great words which the horn was speaking. I watched until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. God took away the dominion of each of those empires, like he took away the Babylonian dominion, but Babylon continued under the Medes and Persians. That's what this means. They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Then Daniel says these beautiful crowning verses of the chapter, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Now, this term, the Son of Man, is the most common self-designation of Christ. Over 30 times in the book of Matthew alone, again and again, Christ referred to himself as the Son of Man. 
And every time he said that, he was referring to this prophecy. He was saying, I am the son of man. I am the one that Daniel spoke of, that I will come and receive an eternal kingdom. I am the king of kings who will come again in the clouds. I am the son of man. It's quite profound. And then we have the crowning scene of his return in verse 14. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The Messiah. How does this affect Daniel? Well, we would understand he's a little shaken up by this. He's grieved in his spirit and the visions of his head troubled him. So what does he do? In the vision, he then goes and asks someone for some additional interpretation. Perhaps an angelic being, it doesn't say. But in verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by me and I asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So the interpretation follows, some of which we've alluded to already. So in verse 17, the person, the the, the interpreter tells him, those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise from the earth. These four kings or kingdoms or empires that we've already defined. And the fourth still having a future stage. We could say Rome and then Rome part two or the revived Roman Empire still yet future uh, in, our, in, in prophecy. And this will be followed by the physical kingdom of God on the earth. In verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and forever and ever. Now, in the literal physical sense, we cannot look back in history and say that this has happened. I understand that there are brothers and sisters that that are in Christendom that believe that this is spiritualized, that this is not literal, that the kingdom is now spiritually fulfilled in the church. But I believe that as you take a literal approach to the scriptures interpretation, which we must do, it will lead us to a literal physical future kingdom of Christ on the earth. You can find your own persuasion, but that's mine. So in verse 19, he says, I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from the others. So he asks him, he inquires about that fourth beast, the Roman Empire, but particularly, verse 20, and the ten horns on its head, and look at this, and the other horn which came up. This is what got Daniel's attention in the vision. He sees the kingdoms, and then he sees these ten kings, and this little horn that comes up, and he has to ask the question, and we're glad he did. Verse 21. As he's inquiring and as he's watching, the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So Daniel in the vision is watching this little horn that we know to be the Antichrist. And he sees him prevailing or defeating the saints. 
And how long does the Antichrist prevail over the saints? And I'd like to, to, to look at this together. The answer is three and a half years. This period is known as the Great Tribulation. There is a seven-year period right here. At the end of the church age, there will be seven years right before the second coming of Christ, right before the millennial reign. That seven years is divided into two parts, two, three and a half years. It's the most clearly defined time period in the Bible, that last three and a half years. What do I mean by that? It's, it's referred to in different prophecies as three and a half years, as 42 months, as 1260 days, as half a week from Daniel 9, and week in the Hebrew means seven, and the context is years, so half seven years there, and also a time and a times and a half a time. Time is singular, times there in the Hebrew is dual, so it's one plus two, and half a time is three and a half. So God goes out of his way to clarify this particular time. It's not to be spiritualized. It's not symbolic. It's a literal three-and-a-half-year period in which the Antichrist will have authority and power and be speaking and prevailing over the saints. And it will last for three-and-a-half years. That's before... um, uh, And that's, of course, the persecution and the wrath of the Lamb. By the way, in uh, my, my view, at this point... Before the wrath of the Lamb comes, the church is already removed from the earth in the rapture. So, he's prevailing against the saints. For how long? Three and a half years. Or until the Ancient of Days came. In other words, he prevails for this three and a half years until the Ancient of Days comes, until Christ receives a kingdom. So verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. All that time will come. And Daniel now gets an answer about the fourth beast in verse 23. He's told that the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, different from the others, will devour the whole earth, etc. We've established this to be the Roman Empire. But then he looks to the ten horns or the ten kings in verse 24. And he says the ten horns are ten kings that will arise from this kingdom, the Roman Empire, which is why we come to the idea of the revived form of the Roman Empire in in Europe, etc. today. And another shall rise after them. He will be different from the first ones and will shall subdue four kings. Now, at this point, the man of sin will be revealed. What do I mean by that? The seven-year period starts with a covenant that will be made. This political figure, this last Gentile world ruler, the Antichrist, and by the way, he has 33 names in the Old Testament, another 13 names in the New Testament, 46 different names. He's not a side character. He's a central character in the Scriptures. And he will make a covenant with Israel for seven years. Halfway through that seven years, at what we call the midpoint, he will break that covenant, And though it will be really too late, he will reveal himself for who he really is. And he will show himself to be anti-Christ. And he will speak great pompous words against the Most High God. 
And what's incredible is that he will set up an image of himself in the temple to be worshipped as God. This is known as the abomination of desolation. And Bible students, that's an important term. The abomination of desolation, what is that? It's when the Antichrist at the midpoint of the seven-year period will set up an image of himself in the temple, will will say that there is the mark of the beast that must be taken if you are to to, uh, side with him, to be worshipped as God. The abomination of desolation. We find this in Daniel 9.27. Let's read it. There it's on the screen. It says, And he, this is speaking of the Antichrist, shall confirm the covenant with many, that's a majority in Israel at the time, and in the midst of the week, that's in the middle of the seven years, shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of the abomination that makes it desolate. And this abomination, particularly to the Jew, that there will be an image or anyone else that would be worshipped other than God in the temple. Can you imagine how sacrilegious and how horrific that would be for the Jew? That a man would be claiming to be God to be worshipped and set up an image in the temple. Paul puts it this way in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And Jesus himself refers to this, this future moment in Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, and there's the term, Spoken by Daniel the prophet, that's what we're studying uh, today and particularly in chapter 9. The abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. And then Matthew throws this phrase in, whoever reads let him understand. And that's a good encouragement for us as Bible students that we are to understand this. The Bibles are to be open. There's well over a third of the Bible that is prophecy. So as Bible students, we must also be students of prophecy. So Jesus says in verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you're alive at that time, and he's particularly speaking to the Jews in Judea at that time, if you see the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of, if you see the, the image set up in the temple, run! Run! Because the greatest persecution against the Jews is about to begin. Run to the mountains, run to the hills. This is why in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, this particularly, this last three and a half years is referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. Zechariah 13, 8 says, In all the land, says the Lord, two parts therein will be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. This means two-thirds of the Jews that are alive at the beginning of the tribulation will be killed and one-third will survive. This surviving remnant will be those who believe at the end. According to Romans 11.26, they are the all of Israel that shall be saved. 
and that ushers in the return of Christ. Now back to Daniel 7, in verse 25. And he will speak pompous or great words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And of course, he'll persecute any believer, anyone of any faith. But the focus and concentration is particularly on the Jewish people. And he will intend to change the times and the law. And then the saints will be given into his hand for a times and a time, a time, a times and a half a time. That's again the three and a half years. John puts it this way in Revelation chapter 12. Then the woman fled into the wilderness. And in that prophecy, the woman speaks of Israel, the woman who gave birth to the man-child. Israel brought forth the Messiah. So the woman is Israel. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1260 days. Again, that's the last three and a half years. It's believed that the place that the remnant of Israel will flee to is Petra, which is today in Jordan, the carved out fortress in, in Jordan, uh, which in the Old Testament is called Bozra. Now, uh, in Revelation twelve thirteen, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time, that's the three and a half years, from the presence of the serpent. In other words, that remnant will be spared, kept safe and nurtured and survive to the end of that tribulation period. Revelation 13, 5. He was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. There's that time period again. And then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those that dwell in heaven. So we can see how Revelation and Daniel are so so importantly connected together. Back to Daniel Uh, Oh, sorry, one more verse. Revelation 13, 7. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Back to Daniel 7 in verse 26. But the court shall be seated. Now he goes back to that courtroom scene. The court shall be seated. Remember, the books will be opened, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. This is found in Revelation 19.20. Then the beast, which is the Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who works signs in his presence. This is one who is also satanically um, uh, appointed to benefit the position of the Antichrist himself. But they will be captured those who were deceived, who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped the image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Paul again summarizes this back in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And he says, And then the lawless one, another name for him, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The last two verses here, Daniel 
7.27 And then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Now in a study like this, of course, there are elements of this that will be clearer to us than others. We may be left with questions about the ten horns or the seven horns that were uprooted or the little horn, etc. But step back a bit and see the big picture, which is the most important thing. What we see that is clear is the ultimate assured return of Christ, who will receive a kingdom on the earth and into eternity forever and ever. And we are looking for his return, his victory, his kingdom on the earth. For Christ is the King of kings, and he shall reign forever and ever. And Daniel closes in 7.28 by saying, This is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And so shall we. Amen? So let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word together, to give our full attention to to your word, to your program, to your timetable, with the sense in our hearts that you are the sovereign God over all the ages, over the kingdoms of men, that history is going in a certain direction, and we are so expectant in our hearts as we consider the promised end the assurance of your victory and the kingdom on the earth, finally with a righteous king who will reign forever. We thank you for how this deeply encourages us in our faith, for we understand that the Bible is inspired by you, that the timeline of history is in your hands, and so is our very life. We find great comfort in that, God, knowing that you are with us, you are for us that we are your children, you have a great plan for our lives. Oh, we thank you for Jesus together this morning. Oh, we thank you for Jesus who went to the cross for us, for Jesus who will return again to not a cross but a throne, who will reign as the king. Oh, we thank you for the gift of salvation which is extended to whoever will believe. Perhaps there's one here this morning, you've heard some Bible teaching, you've heard the gospel, but you're not sure of your salvation. Perhaps you're listening online today, or in your heart today, look to Jesus and and make a, a, a confession of faith in your heart and say, oh Jesus, I put my faith in you. I believe, I believe. I believe that you are the Savior. I believe that you are the Son of Man and the Son of God and the Son of David. I believe that you can save me by grace through faith. And as a sinner, I reach out to you this morning and I thank you for saving me today by your grace in this moment and making me a Christian in the true sense. Oh, thank you, Lord. We pray you'd encourage us all with these words and thoughts in our faith and bless us as we, as we fellowship afterwards and as we go. Cover us, protect us, lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.